Now with our message today, or I've already forgot what part this is, but this is Why Worry as part of the Summer on the Mount, the Live and Counterculturally series. It seems like Mark always gives me the easy ones. That's a joke. But with the Sermon on the Mount, and, and the best way to kind of understand that is, is that this is the greatest sermon, message, or speech ever given, and ever will be given. It's, it's a message that can never be compared, that's 2,000 years old, that we're still looking at, we still study, and it's never going to grow old, and it's always going to just penetrate our hearts. But with the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus did was he expounded the full meaning of the law. The Old Testament came to an end, and Jesus showed that, which was pinnacled by his arrival. And he used this platform on the Sermon on the Mount to show that the law was humanly impossible to master. And with this sermon, uh, he set a standard higher than anybody or any scholar, anyone ever before had realized. He took it to a complete different level. Took that outwardly expressed religion of doing things and works and sacrifices and showed that it had to start right here. And this sermon that he gave is the most pointed and precise message that, like I said, anyone has ever given and anyone will ever give. Well, as a prelude to today's message, turn your Bibles to Matthew 6, to verse 19. With the prelude to today's message, and this also helped shape the context for the rest of the message. Look in verse 19. And Jesus said, do not, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus was speaking of in these treasures in verse 19 through 21 were rewards in heaven. Uh, though we don't know exactly what rewards will be, but there's also scripture that, that, that tells us there's going to be rewards. Matthew 5.12, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 5.12, and Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I find that always comforting. You can also look at 1 Corinthians 3.8. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. You can even go further. You can go into James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, uh, you can look up, you can write this down, look up later, but in Revelations 2.10 speaks of, in 2 Timothy 
uh, 4.8 speaks of this crown of life or crown of righteousness given in heaven. But verse 21, or, or that however again, the last verse that we just read, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's a message all in itself. We could give a whole summer series just on that one verse. You know, it strikes me, that verse, it strikes me as one of the most frightful and alarming verses in the entire Bible. Uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Going on in verse 22, the eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. Your eyes are healthy. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. These verses here, verse 22 through 24, you remember, you put it in the context, Jesus was given this Sermon on the Mount, and he's given it, and his audience is not just believers and, and people that were there, but it was also people that wanted him killed. Imagine having to give that kind of a speech. You know, it, it's, it's easy to give a, a message to like-minded believers, but could you imagine also having in the audience people that wanted you dead and are focusing on every single word you said, trying to catch you saying one wrong thing? Of course, our Lord wasn't nervous. Our, our, our Lord didn't worry. He used this platform to, uh, to his advantage. And so he took this shot right at the Pharisees you know, for their superficial earthly religion. They were too blind to see that everything was finished right there. The Old Testament law was finished. They're looking right at the Messiah. He's standing right in front of them. You know, and Jesus, like I said, was taking their outwardly expressed religion and showing that it was merely nothing without an inward change. You know, how can someone want Christ to transform their life if their eyes are fixed on immoral things? What we just read about here, about your eye being the lamp of your body, uh, where your treasures are, there your heart will be. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Serve, you cannot serve two masters. This, these are points that Jesus was driving home. Then he was showing them that if their eyes were fixed on immoral things and saturated with worldly desires that and not on the word of God, what could happen? Now for the heart of today's message, we're going to continue on. We're going to look at Staying in chapter 6, I'm looking at verse 25, and the title in my Bible is Do Not Worry. You know, so what we're going to look at here is the cure for anxiety. Now, I know there's not one single person in here. That I know, I mean, I, I know this crowd. Uh, there's not even one single person here who has this problem, right? You know. So if you're worried that someone else you know does, then this message would be for them. Get it? Use the word worried there. I must have been the only one who got that. Thanks, John. I heard you laugh. 
starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We'll stop right there for a second. You know, there's much to be said about worrying and anxiety and concern, and by no means am I a psychologist, although some of you probably think I need one. But there's a huge difference, huge difference between worry and concern. Huge difference. I learned a lot by studying for this message for myself. Concern basically leads to positive action. Concern is healthy. We're all supposed to have concerns. If you have children, you're concerned about your children. If there's someone in your family sick or, or, or needs attention, it's healthy to have concern. It's, it's, it's a healthy part of our life to have concern. But worry doesn't consider the fact that there is no situation which God cannot reverse. He said, having concern is normal. On the other hand, the Oxford definition of worry, I'm not getting too uh, uh, in-depth here, but the verb tense, I think it's, you got to know the difference here. The verb tense of worry is to give way to anxiety or unease, unease, allowing one's mind to dwell on difficulty or trouble. That's worry. Now, the noun tense, and I was never an English teacher, the noun tense is a state of anxiety and uncertainty over actual, or get this, over actual or potential problems. That's the difference between worry and concern. Is worry healthy? No, worry is not healthy. Having concern is healthy, but worrying is not. I mean, I was thinking of a, a better way to describe this, and, um, but maybe the difference would make better if I explain it this way. You know, when I was a child and growing up, and through my teen years, um, I didn't have to worry about anything, nothing at all. I knew my father uh, always had everything under control, never gave a thought to anything. Uh, you know, he was, and still today, my hero, by all means, and he always had everything under control. I never one time gave any thought to what I needed. The key word there is needed. Food, shelter, clothing, safety. It was never an issue for me growing up. I always wanted to be wherever my father was, but don't get me wrong now. When I 
When I stepped out of line, I paid for it dearly. But the key thing was, and still is today, with my relationship with him, is that I never wanted to disappoint him. Period. Never wanted to disappoint him. Was he perfect? No, of course not. Did he make mistakes? I'm sure he did. And was he always right? Well, I'd say probably at least 95% of the time. Probably more than that, actually. But the things I worried about were worried. Things I worried about and I thought were life-changing moments were nothing more than just childish and anxieties and fears. You know, I remember being in a tough situation one time and my nerves were shot, just absolutely shot. And I looked at my dad and asked him, you know, I said, Dad, why are you so calm? Like, <laughs> just, you know, he's almost making me mad because he was so calm. And he said, this is nothing to be worried about, son. Being in a Vietnam jungle and having bullets flying around you is a time to be worried. And I, I think I, I learned a lot from that right there. Uh, but that relationship has helped me to understand God even better. And I'm very fortunate for that. I think the, the, how it's helped me is to, if I can have these types of reverence for my father, who was not a perfect human being, it helps me to have reverence for our Lord, who is perfect. I'm very fortunate for that. You know, I question people today that, that do not have a sense of respect for their parents. And I'm not really talking about respect. I'm talking about reverence. That's two different things in itself. You know, how can you truly revere God if you can't even respect your own parent? That's one of the most troubling things I see right now in this world is uh, there is no reverence. There's not even respect. If there's no respect, how can there be reverence? You know, in this message about do not worry, I'm also concerned that there's another common misconception about these verses. And from them, many take these verses, 25 through 32, and reason with laziness. And there's a common phrase that all of us have heard. Everybody in here has heard this sometime or another, and that God helps those that help themselves. You won't find that phrase listed in the Bible by verbatim because it stems from ancient Greece, but even Benjamin Franklin used that in his famous book, Poor Richard's Almanac. But I don't know if you've heard of George Barna, but when I was in seminary, we had to study these George Barna research polls a lot. I don't even know if they still do them now or not, but um, they're very interesting to read. And about this phrase that God helps those that help themselves, in a Barna research poll even stated that this phrase topped the poll of the most commonly known Bible verses. Well, it wasn't a Bible verse. Uh, it says a lot about people not knowing or reading their Bible. I remember another Barna research statistic that, that said... Almost 60% of Christians didn't believe Satan was even a real thing. That's troubling in itself as well. But there are many passages in the Bible that, that echo this statement of working. Uh, 
Deuteronomy 28.8 says the Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. Proverbs 6.10-11 says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Proverbs 13.4 says a sluggard's appetite is never filled but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. I love that one. Colossians 3.23-24 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Is the Lord Christ... It is the Lord Christ you are serving. The list goes on. There's several, several verses. James 2.26 says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. For deeds is dead. And if that wasn't enough, just remember this, that Paul, Apostle Paul was a tent maker. Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. Several of the disciples were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector, and Luke was a physician. Uh, there's nowhere in our Bible that promotes laziness. How does that go with do not fear or do not worry about things? Uh, you know, the, the point of this is to show that Jesus does not expect us to sit back and wait you know, for him to provide everything for us. We have a certain responsibility to work. We have a responsibility to provide. First um, Timothy 5.8 says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than the unbeliever. How's that feel? That's tough. We have the responsibility to work. Reminds me of a story of a pastor he was on a sailboat, real windy day. He was on a sailboat, enjoying it. And he had his life jacket on. Well, he fell off the boat. And um, he's sitting there fighting, fighting, fighting. He's nervous. He can't swim. Next thing you know, he comes out of his life jacket. And a boat pulls up to him and says, Sir, you know, here, let's help you get in. He says, Nope, nope. God's got this. Boat goes on. Pastor's sitting there fighting harder, fighting harder. He's about to give up. Another boat pulls up. Says, sir, get in the boat. Throws him out of the rope. Nope. God's going to take care of this. Well, needless to say, he drank. When he goes to heaven and meets Peter at the gates, and he says, I just got one question. He said, man, I've done all this. I was a pastor my whole life visited the sick, did everything I was supposed to do. I couldn't have done more than I did, but the one time I needed God, he wasn't there for me. Peter says, you big dummy, he sent you two boats. We do have a certain responsibility. I also believe that many people confuse teachings on worry with wants versus needs. That's another message in itself. Wants versus needs. You're talking about a touchy subject for some people, this could get many people fired up real quick. You know, start talking about food, clothing, 
vehicles. What is a need versus what is a want and see what happens. You know, the needs Jesus will provide may be your needs, not your wants. Now I want to look at the last two verses here in our section. Verse 33 and 34 of Matthew 6. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I know nobody agrees with that either. I remember years ago, verse 33 was one of the very first verses that I tried to memorize. And always just stood out to me. You know, sometimes, especially when Jesus is talking, conviction follows. To say that Jesus had a way with words is a complete uh, understatement. Definitely the way Jesus spoke gives you a sense of self-reflection on your own life, on your own heart, and your own walk with Christ. It always stuck out to me that this verse was so important. You see, we cannot expect God to bless us with our needs if we're not seeking Him. Does that make sense? we got to be seeking Christ. And how many times have you heard this another one of these old phrases that everyone here has always heard you'll see it in movies all the time is that all we can do now is pray all we can do now is pray you know, does that old saying fit well with the words of Christ with the sermon on the mount you know, we've been doing this probably five six weeks now in this one sermon and just all we can do now is pray go with anything that's inside of your heart were you ever seen in the Bible? No, not at all. Absolutely not. This goes much deeper than just seeking God. You know, we must be seeking his righteousness. What does seeking his kingdom and righteousness mean? It means to be seeking salvation through Christ. Living for him and letting him provide and care and provide. Tony Evans, a pastor in Texas, I admire so much. He said once, Today is the tomorrow you were worried about yesterday. Focusing on living for God's kingdom today is the antidote to worry. Any of this help today, but do not worry. I think a lot can be taken from this, this section. But I think if you read it properly, it's a lot of self-reflection as well. I think people, I was talking to Tanya about this, that you could almost hear someone giving this kind of message and hear people in the background saying, Amen, 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 do not worry, do not worry. That's not what Christ was talking about here. By any means. It's also talking about idleness. Also talking about, in my opinion, he's talking about people today who don't have time for the Word of God, don't have time to look at it, tell others about it, get their kids in church, tell their kids about Christ. There's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. 
You hear that all the time. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells me that Jesus stood there and said, nobody do anything, everybody just sit back and let me take care of this. Nowhere in Scripture it says that. We read a minute ago about Solomon and, and all of his splendor, talking about the lilies of the field, and Solomon, that the, even the lilies of the field were dressed better than Solomon, and the Solomon, you know, had the riches that no one in the world could ever compare to. He had the wisdom that, that God granted him all the wisdom because he asked for just a way in, to, to lead others. And in return, God gave him that wisdom and all the riches of the world. And to say that what God provides is even more splendid than that should really show us a lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what times your word, Father, is can be very tough on us, especially if we don't not living like we should, Father, and, and putting our faith and trust in you. Father, your scripture always gives us the perfect outline. Lord, at the end of this section of your sermon, you say, but Gotta seek you first, your kingdom and your righteousness, Father, and that everything else will fall in line. Lord, we know you're there. Lord, we know your, your hand is always there to help us and guide us on our paths and our walk, Father. But Lord, also that we have to do more. We have to do more. Lord, for our own life, in our own walks, but also for those around us, for those in our own household, for those that are closest to us, or for our neighbors. We know that. And Father, I pray today that your word just leads, guides, and directs us, Father, in that way that for your kingdom and righteousness. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.